We are, uh, we're really glad you're here. If you're here for the very first time, you're actually picking up into kind of a seven-week journey that we're taking through the book of Acts. Well, seven-week journey. It's week seven in our journey through the book of Acts. We laugh because it takes me forever to get through stuff. I love to preach through Scripture, but the problem is when you preach through Scripture, you literally have to work through all this text. And so it's impossible to just go, oh, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 and do the whole thing. Because every word is dripping with so much truth that I, I'm kind of, I kind of gravitate to wanting to really explore some of the depth there. And so it tends to kind of take a little while. But, you know, we've kind of approached this journey as going, look, we're not going to try and knock it all out in one time. We're going to break it up into sections and so on and so forth. But we are actually in week seven. And I told everybody last week, if you were here, you might remember this. And if not, then you're here for the first time that this picture that we're in over the next four weeks is absolutely my favorite picture in all of scripture, visual picture. It takes place in a 24-hour period and it covers two full chapters, Acts 3 and 4. And it's got several movements within it. But from a visual standpoint and just what the gospel looks like that sort of comes out for how we live for Christ, it is absolutely incredible. And it's beautiful and it's really different. It's not beautiful in the terms of how we might think beauty looks, right? It's, it's re- incredibly irreverent in terms of its sort of religious picture. It's convicting. It's challenging. It pushes all of our cultural norms. And I really love it because God used this sort of passage, this kind of picture, this 24-hour picture about five years ago to really turn my life and my understanding of the gospel upside down. And so it always holds this sort of special part of my life because when I began to really look at what unfolds, when we really experience the gospel and allow it to penetrate us and, and change our perspective and mess up our lives, um, this is that picture. And it's a picture that happened to the, the disciples that are now sort of the hands and feet of, of Christ, the picture of the church. And it's really who we're called to be. And last week we explored it through the idea that the gospel changes everything. And we look at this scenario. So Peter and John were on their way to the temple. They were basically doing exactly what Jesus had done, that Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead and all that kind of stuff, and Pentecost had happened, and we're 50 days plus after all those events, and Peter and John are living as the expression of the church along with the other disciples, and now 3,000 plus believers, and so they're returning to the temple to teach and do what Jesus basically did, and it said that as they were going to the temple, they were going through the gate, and a man who was crippled was being brought to that gate to lay there and beg. And we explored the scenario of, of what it meant to be crippled and kind of that picture that that had some thousands of years ago and how you would lay at the gate basically by the church and just sort of wait for people to go in and out, right? And as they'd go in and out, they'd kind of realize that the law says that we need to give to the poor and those that are kind of begging, and so we should do that now, especially we're going in and out of church So we feel kind of bad, so we need to definitely do that and kind of explore that idea. We talked about when Peter and and John showed up at that place and that that beggar was laying there by the mat, by the gate. They stopped. They turned to him and they said, look at us. In other words, look me in the eye. Explore the connotation of what it means to look someone in the eye, especially someone who would have been seen as an outcast. Because back in those days, your handicap or your struggle, if you will, physically was tied to the idea or understanding that, that you were sinful or that your parents were sinful and so somehow God was punishing you. So you are an outcast, you are unclean, and you are sitting outside the temple. And Peter and John stop and they say, look at us in the eyes right here. Silver or gold we don't have, Right? But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And it says that they reached down and grabbed him by the right hand, and he stood to his feet, and instantly his feet and ankles became strong. And the man began running around, 
praising God. It said he ran straight into the temple courts, a place that he had never been allowed to go before in his whole life because of his condition and his uncleanliness. And he burst through the gates and he was praising God. He was screaming at the top of his lungs, right? And we really explore this picture from the idea that the gospel changes things, right? It changes the way that we see the world, that Peter and John no longer saw themselves as just going to temple to sort of do activities and pray, but instead they, weren't able to, they were able to no longer walk past someone like this. They saw people differently. They no longer were able to just sort of step over that handicapped person on their way to experience religious life, but because they had encountered Christ and the gospel had changed them, they saw the world differently and they saw this person and they gave him value and they looked him in the eye and they said, listen, we can't give you what you think you want. But we can give you something greater. We talked about how the gospel changes our understanding of what we need. Most of us think we need certain things. I need this. God, give me that. Relieve me of this. Take care of that. Do that. But really, the gospel turns our understanding of need upside down. What this man thought he needed was the ability to walk. Or what he thought he needed was the ability for money. Give me some dollars. But what was really going on was something greater. A bigger, deeper need. And Peter and John gave him the ability to walk. However, that turned into a radical praising of who God was. We talked about the gospel changes our understanding of what we need. And finally, we talked about how the gospel changes the way people around us see our lives. And that's what we're going to pick up today. We're going to pick up at, the, at that exact moment as this crippled person comes bursting through the gates of the religious establishment. Of all the places that he shouldn't be, he goes kicking in the doors and screaming and running. And he's joyful and happy. And here come Peter and John right behind him. And all the people are amazed. So we're going to look at what Peter does in that moment to begin to communicate the gospel to this incredible, kind of incredibly amazed, onlooking crowd. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 3. This is the second part of it, what I see is like four big pieces in these two chapters. And so this is, the first one is this healing, and the second one is sort of Peter's second sermon, if you will. This is the second time we see Peter address a large crowd. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll just sort of uh, work through it together. Lord, I thank you for truth. I thank you, Father, that everything in this life is not relative, Lord, that you've given us an anchor point in Scripture, that there is absolute truth, and that, God, you are that truth. You tell us, Father, that um, even Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, we know that when we open your word, we are encountering you, we are encountering truth. And so, God, this morning, I pray that what we would do is we would meet you, that you would reveal yourself to us, that through the ordinary story or through maybe passages that we've read before, you would show us new things about who you are, or maybe things that we need to hear or see or encounter, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and challenge us where we need to be challenged and help us celebrate where we need to celebrate. But God, God, you would reveal yourself to us. Take a moment, just right where you are, sitting right there, and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Just ask God to reveal truth to you, to teach you, to do something in your heart or life. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you, behind you. Um, Pray that God would move in them. We do this each week. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, I pray that your word would stand alone and that God would illuminate our hearts. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look from Acts 3, 11, all the way down through the end of that chapter. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of work through it. And part of the challenge of preaching through text like this is that um, 
Sometimes you come across places that are really dense. And so I'm going to try and make sense of some really dense, deep uh, movements in Scripture. And so it's easy when we kind of can just sort of pick and choose text to hop a few things here or there. But what we're going to try and do today is make sense of some really dense, deep, but powerful uh, truth about repentance and the way that the gospel changes our hearts. So let's take a look at it together, and then I'm going to try and simplify some things down and pull some, some ideas out. So you know where we are. Peter and John have just healed this guy. He burst through the temple. Verse 11 says this. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, the people were astonished. And they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to the men of Israel, why does it surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you decided to let him go. But though Pilate had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold to the prophets, saying that this Christ would suffer. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets of the covenant of God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. All right, so a lot of words, right? Words, 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 words. A lot of words, a lot of dense words. But there's an incredible thing that's going on here, okay? And I'm going to kind of walk you through it and simplify a few of these things. Because this is Peter's second sermon, right? Kind of week two or three, I can't remember, back in there, we explored Peter's first sermon. About 14 or so of these in the book of Acts. And, and this is Peter's second one. And he seizes a moment to share gospel truth. But this is the picture that I love. So here you have, sitting outside the gate of a temple, the place that people go to kind of do all their religious activities, you have this outcast, this person, this crippled beggar who goes there every day. In fact, we know that because everybody recognized him. It says that when he was healed, the people recognized him as the same man who used to sit by the temple gate called Beautiful and beg for money. So everybody knew him, and he was there day after day after day. And Peter and John walked by him the same way that, that Jesus would, and yet their lives were so wrecked by the gospel that they saw people the way that Jesus did, and they stopped, and they basically said, I've got something better than what you think you need. And they healed the man, and he takes off, and he bursts to the temple. And this picture is what we see. So Peter and John go to this place called Solomon's Colonnade, which ran the east side of the outside wall of the temple. And it was basically two pillar or two columns of pillars with a roof of cedar, but it was open. It was like a portico, if you will, all right? And Jesus oftentimes taught there himself, and so here they are teaching, and the picture says, and there they were, right? And the beggar, right, was holding on to them. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to this place. 
So this guy healed, burst at the door, screaming at the top of his lungs, jumping for joy, praising God. Verse 9 and 10, or 8 and 10, I says he was, the people were astonished. He comes into the outer court there with the disciples, where he was never allowed to go, hanging on Peter and John, literally draped on them, right? Not because he could no longer walk, he was running around and praising God, but because his life was now so intertwined with what was happening that he's draped on these guys, and people are coming running to see what's happening. I love this picture because it's two Christ followers, right? Two people that have had their lives messed up by the gospel with this crippled beggar still in his beggar, dirty, filthy rags draped on their shoulders with newly healed ankles and people, pious religious people coming running to see what's happening. It's one of the most incredible pictures because to me it illuminates so much of what the gospel is about. A couple of guys who had their lives so turned upside down that they no longer could see the world the same way. That a person that they would have never touched in their whole religious life was now hanging on them. In all of his filthy rags and all of his beggar clothes and the religious establishment comes running. I think the picture is incredible. And that's why this sort of scenario is one of my favorite because it turns all of our understandings of what gospel should be upside down. It wasn't like this guy had his healed and then he bolted out the door and just ran for the hills. And it wasn't like Peter and John disassociated with him, did a few things, felt kind of nice, bad for the guy, gave him a few things, felt a little better about themselves, like sometimes we do, right? Give a guy a couple of dollars, feel a little better, serve the city rescue mission at Christmas, feel a little better about my life, like just cross-pollinate my life enough with people that aren't like me to feel a little bit better than call it diversity or call it outreach or whatever it is. But we have this picture of Peter and John draped with this beggar. And the religious establishment comes running. Now, Peter seizes this moment like he often does. He takes these opportunities to say, well, as long as you're here, and as long as you're running to see what's going on, let me tell you a little bit about what's happening. And he launches into this second sermon. And this one's a little bit different, and it's a little bit different because it's expressly Christocentric, meaning it's all about Jesus. And I know that doesn't sound like much, but if you remember his first one, it was a little bit bigger, broader picture. But this one is really all about the person of Christ. And the first move he makes is this sort of incredibly important redirection, right? So all the people are thinking that these miracles are ascribed to these two men, as oftentimes happens. When we did something or when something happened, the people would get credit. Like a miracle took place and you are a miracle person. If you proclaimed a word, you are a prophet. But what Peter does is he redirects the attention, right? People are running from all over and Peter redirects it by saying, listen, he said, basically, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? He's saying, so why are you looking at us? Why are you looking at this person? Why are you enamored by this miracle as if by our own power or our own godliness or our own good abilities, we were able to do this? Peter redirects and deflects the glory back to God. Now, this doesn't sound like much, but let me tell you how important it is. As followers of Christ, every part of our life should be a redirection of glory back to the Lord. Everything should be about me not getting glory and God getting all the glory. When you fully realize that your life is a complete and total mess and that you are falling apart and that you are nothing without, without the Lord, then every good thing is because of who he is. But that's not how our culture works, right? We are not deflectors of glory. 
We want attention. We clamor for attention. We want recognition from the smallest favor to the giant cardboard check. We want people to recognize what we've done and what we do. It's part of our culture and it's ingrained in us. We want recognition for the things we do at work. We want recognition from the things we do at home. Interestingly enough, last night while I was kind of getting ready for bed, I was watching TV and Seinfeld came on as my favorite and literally the best show of all time. And if you're too young to know what it is, you should Netflix it if it has Netflix. It's great. I don't even know what Netflix really is, by the way. I thought I'd use that term. We don't have it. So So anyway, but the one that came on was the the big salad episode. Here's what's happened. George is dating this girl named Julie, right? And and they're at the coffee shop, and Elaine comes in, and and George says, you want something? She goes, I'll take a big salad. And then she leaves. And so George and Julie order her this big salad, and they take it back to Jerry's apartment, where Jerry and and Elaine are. And Julie walks in, and she says, here's your big salad. She says, thank you, Julie. I appreciate it. They leave, and the thing goes on, and they leave, and George and Jerry left standing there. And George looks at Jerry, and he says, did you see what just happened here? And Jerry goes, well, that all depends. And George says, Julie just took credit for my big salad. I bought the big salad. I paid for the big salad. I should get credit for the big salad. And the entire episode is George trying to figure out how he can let Elaine know that he bought the big salad so that he could get the big salad thank you. That's all he wanted. But his whole episode was about just trying to let her know that he paid for that and Julie secretly stole his thank you. Whole episode. Our lives are riddled with this kind of thing. We so desperately want people to know. Even in our marital relationships, we want our spouses to know that we're trying. At least give me the nod of effort. Do you see? I cleaned the whole house. Pick your underwear up off the floor. A little thank It's never happened in our house, obviously, right? This is what we clamor for. But what Peter does is this radical redirection by saying, look, this isn't about us. Right? As the leader of the church, Peter could have easily said, this is the power that God has given me. You guys should all follow this and be sort of celebritized himself by his own skill set. Right? But he deflects it. He says, listen, why are you surprised? Right? This is about Jesus. And then he does, in the next few verses, he puts forth this incredible contrast. Okay, and I'm going to go through it kind of quickly just because we touched on a few of these things a few weeks ago in his first sermon. But he lays out three or four things kind of, kind of anchored in the Old Testament about who Jesus is. And then he contrasts them with some things and accusations that he puts on the Jewish people. But this is basically what he says. He said, listen, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, right? So this is our God. We are all of this together, right? He glorified his servant. So he He makes this reference, it's really a reference to Isaiah 52 and 53 with a suffering servant. And he makes this reference that Jesus was God's servant. He was the one that was prophesied about, the one that was told about. He was the one that must suffer before he was glorified. So he makes this first thing where he says, the God of our fathers, right? The same God that you and I believe in, right? This God, right? Jesus is his servant. He's the one that was talked about, right? He goes on and calls him the holy and righteous one. You disowned the holy and righteous one making lots of references to the holiness of Jesus, right? Something that was only ascribed to God himself. God, Jesus is holy in essence. He is one with God. He is righteous. He is just. He was perfect, right? And then verse 15, you killed the author of life. And uh, Peter refers to Jesus as the author of life, which of course is a title that can only be ascribed to God. God is the author of all life, both in creation. He breathed life into the very lungs and the idea of salvation, 
that Jesus is the author of eternal life. So you get these pictures, the God of our fathers, the one that we're in together, right? His servant Jesus, the one that was prophesied about in Isaiah, the holy and righteous one, the only one that is holy and pure and blameless, right? And the author of life. This is Jesus. He says, this is the Jesus that I'm talking about, that gave us this power that made this miracle happen. He says, I want you to understand who he is. And then he says, I want you to understand what you've done. So he lays out this great contrast. He said, this is Christ. And then he gives four very specific accusations to this crowd, right? And this is what he says. Here are the four. The first one is he says, you handed him over to be killed, right? Which is true. The Jewish people seized Jesus, an angry mob led by the Pharisees, remember all that, and led by some of the chief priests, seized Jesus and they handed him over to the Roman authorities, to Pilate, because they knew that they thought that Jesus was a blasphemer and they knew that the Romans would have to punish him up to death. So they handed Jesus over to be killed, knowing full well that would happen. You disowned him before Pilate. Remember, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate says, is this your king? Is it king of the Jews? And they basically cried out, this is not our king. They disowned him before Pilate. Verse 14, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be released to you. Remember that same trial where, where Pilate says, hey, listen, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. He goes, he's done nothing wrong. But what I do have is, and this is my custom, I'll release one prisoner to you. And I got this murderer we've been holding. His name's Barabbas. I got innocent Jesus and I got Barabbas, the murderer. Which one do you want? Right? And they disowned Jesus and called for the murderer. Give us Barabbas. You remember how the gospel story goes. Give us Barabbas. You disowned him and called for a murderer to be released to you. Then 15, you killed the author of life. So by calling for Barabbas, by disowning Jesus before Pilate, they set Jesus up on this death sentence. And Pilate says, what do you want me to do with him? And the crowd chanted in unison, crucify him, crucify him. So Peter says this. He says, the God of our forefathers, Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, that God that we all believe in has set this Jesus up to be his servant, the suffering servant that was prophesied about in Isaiah, the holy and righteous one and the very author of life. This is Jesus. Listen to what you've done. You have, dis- you have betrayed him and you have handed him over to be killed. You have disowned him before Pilate. You have asked for the hand of a murderer and you have killed the author of life. This incredible contrast. And then come the most amazing words in all of Scripture. And and this is not the first time we see them, and it's not the last time we see them. But they're the two most important and amazing words in all of Scripture. And just when you get to that moment where you think all hope is lost, right? That moment in Peter's first sermon, if you are here a few weeks ago, when the crowd was cut to the heart. Remember? It says the crowd was cut to the heart, and they looked at Peter and said, what should we do? They were so moved by this gospel presentation, this story, by their own sinfulness, that they said, what have we done And it said that 3,000 came. In that same moment, you feel like you have killed. He drops that dagger. You have killed the author of life, right? And the two greatest words in all Scripture, verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God. They're the two greatest words in all of Scripture. Different versions kind of record them different ways. But when they're laid out that way, man's worst, God's best. So you killed the author of life. You handed him over, you disowned him, you called for a murderer, you killed him, but God. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, 
the man whom you see now, this crippled person, was now made strong. It is in Jesus' name the faith that comes from him has given us this complete healing that we see today. Basically what he's saying is, listen, this is Jesus, servant, holy and righteous one, author of life. You betrayed him, you handed him over, you disowned him, and you killed him. But God, in God's amazing, infinite, incredible power and glory and wisdom and kind of redemptive plan, raised him from the dead, your worst, right, could not overcome what God was doing. And he uses these words, but God, as incredible pictures of hope. And they're words that work in our life, that when we sin and when we fail and we struggle, there is always but God. But God loved you. But God gave his son for you. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ gave his life for us. The but gods in scripture are game changers. And this is one of them. So here are these people, cut to the heart, realizing who this Jesus was, seeing this incredible miracle, realizing what they have done, betrayed, disowned, killed. And then Peter says, but there's hope. But there's hope. And he leads them down a path. And he said, now listen, let me tell you about this hope, verse 17. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, right? Saying that Christ would suffer. He's going, look, I know you acted in ignorance, but that doesn't make it right. And so did your leaders. This is what God was doing. And he said, here is the hope, right? This contrast leads to this hope. Repent then and turn to God. So the answer to all this for this crowd is repentance. Peter lays a baseline of sin and guilt. This is who Jesus was. This is what you've done. You are guilty and you are broken. You killed the author of life. You are sinful. But God, there's hope. But through God, there is hope. And here's where it comes. Through repentance. Now, repentance, we talked about a few weeks ago. In contrast to the way we talked about a few weeks ago, this word, this Greek word for repentance, actually means a reversal or a turn away from specific behavior. Last time we looked at it, it was an exploration of a change of mind. This actual Greek word is a physical move away from a behavior in the change. And repentance really involves two things in these categories. The first one is it involves an understanding that my idea, behavior, action is sin before God. So the first part of repentance is acknowledging or understanding or coming to the realization that whatever I've engaged in, whatever that thought was, whatever that thing is, is actually an offense to God and it's sin. So if we don't believe what we're doing or who we are or whatever we're engaged in is sin, then we can't really repent from it, right? It makes sense. Kind of the greatest doctrine in all of Scripture is the doctrine of sin. We don't understand sin. We can't understand grace. We can't understand who we are in relationship to other humans, to God, salvation, the whole bit. So understanding our sinfulness, understanding that our actions and our activities is sin is the first part of repentance. This is why Peter lays this baseline saying, this is what you've done, right? So the first part of repentance is understanding that my actions, my thought process, who I am in the specific activities actually sin to God. And I'm not just talking about handing Jesus over to be killed. I'm talking about everything in your life. When we begin to realize that the way I think about myself, my pride, my desire for self-recognition, my desire for self-glory, my desire for me, my desire for this, my lust, my anxiety, my worry, whatever it is, is sinful and it's an offense to God. Step one in repentance. Step two is the actual turning away from the behavior. True gospel repentance always results in a behavior change. 
It results in an absolute turning away. It's why Peter says this. He says, repent then and turn to God. So repent, turn away from this behavior, this thing, this thought, this idea, which the Jewish people believed they were right. Turn away from that and turn towards God. These are not things we do on our own. These are moves that God makes in us. Even the understanding of sin is a revelation that God gives us. So God reveals our brokenness, empowers us through his goodness to turn away from that. Right? None of this is by our own volition, but by God's move. Repentance, understanding that God is revealing to us sin and a desiring to make a behavioral change. Now here's the thing. Repentance has with it. I'll kind of wrap everything up, kind of going through these because I know we're getting long, I'm getting long-winded. But repentance has a certain set of blessings associated with it. It really does. And actually, this text lays those out. So he says, listen to this crowd. When you repent, when you turn from God, when you recognize your thought, your ideas, your sinfulness, and you turn from those towards God, there are some incredible things that are going to happen in your life. And this is the presentation of the gospel and what happens when repentance takes hold of a heart in true fashion. And Peter says there are three things, right? He says, repent then, turn to God that your sins may be wiped away. Number one, your sins are wiped away. True gospel repentance leads to the wiping away. Actually, the word there is washing. I don't know what your version says, but the true word is a word that means washing, to be cleaned, to be scrubbed out. That your sins are washed, cleaned, scrubbed out. Which is what most of us know when it means to re-repent, to, to say, God, I surrender my life. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. God no longer sees my sinful mess, but he sees Christ's redemptive blood. And he blots out my transgressions, right? And we have the substitution that takes place where Christ takes my place. We did all that deep theology back when we talked about five truths about the death of Jesus. But that's what's taking place. That our sin is washed, scrubbed, cleaned away, right? It's one of the most beautiful pictures of repentance that we go from being dead and sinful and broken to clean. It's incredible. But the second incredible blessing that comes from it is that he says this, repent that your sins are wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, I don't know about what you think when you think about times of confession and repentance, but times of refreshing aren't what come to my mind. What comes to my mind is anxiety and struggle and fear and worry because we are airing the fact that we are not perfect and that we have messed up and that we have done this, we have offended God and people and coming clean with those things is painful and it's hard. And that doesn't bring about an idea of refreshment to me. It brings about an idea of anxiety and worry and selfishness. But one of the beautiful things about repentance, true gospel repentance, is that it brings about times of refreshing. Why? Because it is no longer me. I can't do it. I can't protect myself, my image, my idea, my thing from my own self, from the people around me, from whoever. True repentance, God I need you. I am broken. I can't do this. I confess and I turn away from this thought, this activity, this thing. And I turn towards you. And I don't know what that means and how you're going to fix anything in my life. All I know is that I can't do it. And what Peter says is that those are when the times of refreshment comes from the Lord. Not because you have all the answers and have figured it out and know exactly the consequences of everything, but because you are trusting that God is sufficient. So I turn from this, and I say, God, I can't. And Peter says, those are moments of refreshing. I love that. 
Because true gospel repentance leads to times of refreshing from the Lord, from God saying, I've got it, and I've got you. And you can just sort of, like a child in a parent's arms, just sink and be held, right? And finally, and I'll wrap it all up with this, finally, the last blessing that comes from this is that we are promised that we will experience the restoration of all things. So you go down a little bit, verse, verse 21, that he must remain, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time that comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So the first two are this instantaneous, right? Gospel repentance leads to a wiping out of my sins and a time of refreshment, but this one has a bit of an anticipation. This is a promise that we have, that when we repent of our old life, our old way, when we surrender our hearts to Jesus, that we are promised that we will experience God's restoration of all things, that this broken world is not the end. That as Revelation 21 talks about, there will be a time where there are no more tears, no more pain, no more brokenness. That God will reconcile all things to himself through Christ, as Colossians 1 says. And there will be a time when God makes all things new. And that giving our lives in gospel repentance, saying, Jesus, I can't do this, I need you as my Lord and Savior. We are promised to experience the restoration of those things, that this world is not final that this world in its broken form is not the end-all, be-all, that we were created to know God and be with him and that God will restore and reconcile all things to him. And then in verse 23, Peter gives this really powerful warning where he says, listen, if you don't listen to Jesus, destruction will happen. And it's why Peter preaches with such urgency. He's not saying take some time and think about this stuff. He's saying there is a gospel urgency. Without Christ, destruction will happen. But gospel, true gospel, leads us to repentance and it leads us to these blessings and these promises. A lot of words there to get us to a place where we say, my natural inclination will be to choose me for everything and in everything. What's best for me, what's best for my world, what's best to make me feel better, my relief, what gets recognition for me. God, give me this, show me this, let people see this in me. I just want them to see a little bit of that, make me feel better about myself. Recognition, recognition, recognition. Me, 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 me. Following Christ is a a deflection of all of that, and I'm a complete and total disaster. I'm nothing without Jesus, and I want people to see Jesus in me. John the Baptist says it in John 3, says he must become greater, I must become less, or he must increase, I must decrease, depending on your version. In other words, I become less, God becomes more should be my entire mantra for my life, right? That Jesus is this, and that I have proclaimed lies about myself, and that I need to repent. And that repentance, true gospel recognition of my sin, turning from that behavior, leads me to some blessings that only God can give. Cleanses my sin, leads me in times of refreshment, and he promises me that he's going to take this world and restore it, that it is not the end. The alternative is destruction. God's plan, restoration. It's the beauty of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, you're hearing all these things and you're saying, and that sounds like a lot. I know that I've been showing up or I know that I may have here for the first time, but I've never surrendered my heart to Jesus. I've never said, Jesus, I, I, I'm a sinful person. I want you to come be part of my life. I want to go from old to new. I want to surrender my heart to you. I want you to come up after this while we're singing and just come visit with me and let me share with you the truth about what that means, give you the opportunity to surrender your life to Christ, to go from death to life, to go from sinfulness to repentance, 
to go from destruction to restoration because of who Christ is and what God has done through him. Let's pray.